0: The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the show, I'm Brent Holland, and welcome one and all to Night Fright. Tonight, folks, we're going to revisit an old friend, Rod Pyle, is here all the way from California. Outside the studio tonight in Kingston, it's a chilly one. Kingston, Canada, we're in the middle of February, and it's cold out there. It's about, um, oh, I don't know, minus uh, minus 5, 6 Celsius, which is, what, around 23, 24 Fahrenheit. It's a good night to get in your cozy chair. Put the fire on, get a coffee going, get a tea going. Or, even better, a beverage of choice. And God knows I could use one tonight. I'm congested like I'll get out. Amazing stories of the space age. Rod Pyle's new book, Two Tales of Nazis in Orbit. Now, that's where I always wanted to send Nazis, was, was in orbit. I'll to be honest with you, Rod, but maybe that's not the best place after reading your book. Soldiers on the Moon? orphan Martian robots, and other fascinating accounts from the annals of space flight. Now, Amazing Stories of the Space Age is about the most mysterious and intriguing episodes of the history of space exploration. It uncovers projects, grandiose dreams, odd spin-offs, and muffled dramas. But rather than being tales of fiction or bogus conspiracy theories, the amazing stories presented here in the book are all true, thoroughly researched, and expertly described. Our guest tonight and the book's author, Rod Pyle, has an encyclopedic knowledge of everything space. Welcome back, Rod. Thanks for joining us once again. By the way, folks, Rod's previous show with us on Mars Just Google Rod Pyle, Night Fright Show, or at the archives at www.nightfrightshow.com. And when you're there at the uh, www.nightfrightshow.com, just click on tonight's guest book cover. It'll take you right to a spot where you can order it from the comfort of your own home in your armchair with your beverage of choice. Rod, welcome back. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's nice to be back.
0: It's good to have you back. Can we jump in right away? Um... I read the book, and the one that stood out, and I had no idea about this one, Apollo 11, and the near crash on the moon. Can you tell us a little bit about that one?
1: Yeah, there were a couple of dramas that we really didn't know much about when it was happening, and that was 1969, July 20th, 1969. So this is the time we had three television networks, three or four major radio networks, and uh, no let me shut that off, I'm sorry. I don't want that pinging in the background while we're trying to talk. All right. Um, the, NASA had a very cozy relationship with the media, and the media had a fair amount of control over the message. And when I say the media, I mean these major networks. So what we heard was what was happening in mission control. You didn't have tweets coming from the console like you did towards the end of the shuttle era. Because I used to stand in the, the press area waiting for space shuttle launches, and if you waited for NASA to tell you why there was another four-hour hold, you were just going to hear anything. But we were getting tweets from the control room saying, hey, uh, you know, we got a hydrogen leak. It's probably going to be another 45 minutes. So that's a whole different era. So during the Apollo 11 landing, what we knew was that Aldrin and Armstrong had crawled in the lunar module. They had disconnected from the command module, which is where Michael Collins would stay in orbit. And although we didn't know it at the time, and NASA didn't actually know at the time, at the moment they disconnect those two spacecraft, the air out of the connecting tunnel hadn't been completely evacuated, so it was a little puff, and that was just enough of a push to send the lunar module slightly downrange further than it should have been, a little more speed than they wanted. So that was the beginning of the small problems. Then as they're descending under power and mostly under computer control, uh, you'll remember, you may have heard uh, on the downlink, Aldrin saying we've got a 1202 alarm, and everybody down the control is going, what? What the hell is that? That's not on our that's not on our cheat sheet. What's a 1202-1201 computer alarm? So it turned out I was gonna say we just gotta get the books out and find out what that error
0: code represents because folks there was, you know, no dream of a of a smartphone even in those days. I mean everything was done by slide rule. So we have to put ourselves in that era. And I can just yeah. see everybody scrambling and going crazy. Sorry to interrupt.
1: Well, they were switching around to get their binders off the shelf and look it up. So finally, a guy in the back room, actually, they had a secondary room with more engineers in it, said, I remember that from a simulation. That's computer overload. It's getting too much information. It's okay. It won't crash. Just keep flying. So these errors kept coming in, but the computer was freezing. So at a certain point, Armstrong said, look, I'm taking over. And he flew the landing by hand. So that was pretty hairy. So by the time they were down within a couple hundred feet of the surface, mission control noticed that the spacecraft was no longer moving vertically. It was only moving horizontally. And they said, what's going on? And Armstrong was busy. So basically the message was, look, we're trying to find a place to sit down that isn't covered with rocks the size of RVs. Leave us alone. So they finally got down to the ground. Everybody breathed a big sigh of relief. He says, Houston, tranquility base here. The Eagles have landed. Big Cheers. As Gene Kranz said famously during an interview, I was so excited I broke my pencil. That's a true engineer. And um, not too long after that, 15, 20 minutes later, on one console in Mission Control, the guy who's watching the lunar module descent stage begins to see this one gauge begin to creep up higher and higher. And it's pressure in the fuel, fuel lines. Now, the lunar modules landed— Everything's turned off on the descent stage. They're done with that. When they leave, they go up with the second stage. But you don't want a pipe exploding on the descent stage with all this fuel spraying all over a hot engine that could explode. So at that point, they had a choice: they could abort, they could ignore it, or they could uh, they could just wait and see if it went away. Or uh, that was about it. Those are the only choices they had. So they huddled together with the guys from Grumman. They they got the TRW people in there who had built the rocket engine that got them to the moon that landed them and said what do we do and they were debating and twisting their guts up about this do we tell the astronauts well there's probably nothing they could do unless they're going to abort holy moses out come the slide rules and then very quickly suddenly poop down it goes so apparently what happened was it was so cold on the moon a fuel plug a piece of ice frozen one of these lines was building pressure up on the pressure on the fuel tanks and before it had a chance to blow the pipe, it melted because of the residual heat in the engine and all was well. But we never heard about that. It was, it was there to be read if you knew where to look. But in terms of what was out on ABC, NBC, CBS, they didn't mention that. So that was a really cool story, I thought.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, part of that, too, was they almost ran out of fuel
1: when they were landing, didn't they? My God. Yeah, he, I mean, they had maps from orbit. The resolution wasn't great from those earlier flights. So they knew generally where the rocky areas were, but he was beyond the part of the map he wanted to be on because of this overflight issue. So, like I said, he was looking at these fields of boulders, and he said, I've just got to take over control and land anywhere I can. So he was just looking for a big, flat, open spot. As they got within about 50 feet of the surface, there was so much downblast from that rocket engine, the descent engine, all this dust just kicked up. So in that last 20, 30 feet descent... He had to watch his shadow of the lunar module and gauge by that because he couldn't actually see the ground. So it could have gone wrong in a lot of ways. And it's credit to all those guys, but especially the people that designed the training. It was so realistic. And even though they hadn't really simulated that particular computer issue much and didn't know about the the dust issue before the landing. This was the first landing. The simulations were so good that the guys were able to be able to stay calm. Their pulse rates didn't skyrocket too high, and they pulled it off with, I believe, about twenty seconds of fuel to spare. At that point, they would have had to have tried an abort, but they're probably too low to do it successfully.
0: Was there a backup plan that they could abort and get off the lunar surface without landing on it? That's not the way I want to put it. If they had run out of Fuel as was there a a go, a go no go point where they could have aborted, and were they past that point?
1: Yes, exactly. Oh, they were in the dead man's curve. So there's an altitude below which you don't want to go and abort because it takes time to shut down the one engine hit the abort switch, explosive charges have to go off, there was a guillotine blade that cut through a bundle of wires, and then the ascent stage would light. So that time is enough that if you're falling at an appreciable rate of speed, you're going to be on the surface, whether you like it or not, before your ascent engine gives you enough thrust to get away. So they didn't really want to do it at the altitude they were at. They didn't know if it would work or not, because, again, that isn't something that had been tested. Apollo 10 had tested going down towards the lunar surface in the land without landing, but I think they only got within about 8 miles of it, so at that point, you know, you don't want to be punching out at the altitudes that they were at with Apollo 11.
0: <laughs> these are amazing stories, folks. Um, Rod, could we go into the Nazis? I had mentioned them at the outset.
1: I yes. hate these guys. And Operation... You so Indiana Jones both, right? Pardon me? You and Indiana Jones. He always says Nazis. I oh, hate the, the, the slime
0: of humanity. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Look at that, folks. Mm -hmm. on?
0: yeah, that's uh, Sean Connery's. uh, That's what he says. Um, Yeah, they they had this Operation Silverbird, and uh, it was basically, from what I read, it was a Nazi attempt for delivery system of a suborbital skip bomber. Now, what frightened the hell out of me were two things. One of their major targets was Manhattan, Mm -hmm. and it started as early as 1938. Now. The U.S. wasn't in the war before 1941, but already Germany had plans to bomb mainland USA. Can we talk about Operation Silverbird?
1: Yeah, Silverbird came out of the 30s. So Jugen Sanger was the designer of this, and he was a contemporary of von Braun. They were contemporaries, but not friends. You might say they are rivals. They were both working at that point within the German rocketry uh, fraternity because it really wasn't a business yet um, because rockets weren't something that people were using at least not, not the way they are now and up through the 30s von Braun was moving ahead quite a bit faster than Sanger although he was also building some uh, rockets of his own and working on designs for other kinds of things um, so here comes the war von Braun gets the nod to design the V2 Wonder Weapon which was Germany's low-powered ballistic missile first one ever short-range ballistic missile, takes off like a rocket, flies up into the stratosphere, and comes back down like a a ballistic missile, and kabam, when it hits London or Antwerp, wherever it was headed. Um, Sanger didn't get that kind of contract. He was designing, I think, ramjets at that time. So everybody, if you were going to continue doing this kind of technology, rocketry technology, you had to go join the military. So von Braun famously became both a Nazi and an SS officer which is one of those kind of moral gray areas. We still haven't figured out exactly how that worked. Sanger went to work for the military. So he said, hey, look, you guys want to design this America bomber, they called it. And they were looking at propeller planes. They were looking possibly at jet power plants. He said, I'll do better than that. I'll build what today we would call a space shuttle that will go up. It'll be just about orbit, slightly suborbital, but it'll it'll, uh, leave from the German coast or from an island off the coast of Europe. It would launch horizontally off a track, like if you remember when when worlds collide or Thunderbirds in the old days, same kind of thing, off the swoopy track, up it goes, and then at fuel burnout, it's high enough that it can glide over the Atlantic in space and then bounce off the stratosphere a couple of times because the air is dense enough to do that, re-enter over New York, and drop its payload. Now, it was capable of carrying almost 9,000 pounds of bombs, and we know that those guys were working on the atomic bomb. So had that come together, they could have potentially nuked Manhattan. Uh, but even a conventional explosive of that size being dropped from that altitude, just the energy of it hitting the ground, 8,000-pound bomb, much like the explosion, is enough to take out a good chunk of downtown. Um, unfor- so it would continue. So it drops the bomb, continues to glide across the United States and lands in Japanese-held territory of the Pacific, stick an aircraft carrier, send it back to Germany. He was going to try and f- fly two or three of these things a day it was his great dream. When you read the actual literature as translated by the U.S. Army a few years later, some of his estimates were, were wildly optimistic. You know, he had a pound, I think a thrust of 200,000 pounds for the main engine at its maximum, which was surely more than they could have done. And people who know about um, the engineering for these kind of things looked into it and said, you know, his equations were off and that thing would have melted upon reentry. So there are a lot of things that would have had to work out, probably wouldn't have gotten it done by the end of the war. But even the fact that he tried is astonishing. Uh, Even Hitler wasn't crazy enough to sign off on it. But interestingly enough, his designs and a lot of the engineering work he did, wind tunnel testing, mathematical modeling, made their way into programs in the 50s in the U.S. and uh, Soviet Union for rocket planes and shuttle-type vehicles. And in fact, it informed our space shuttle program, because the earliest designs of that looked very much like the Silverbird, with this long fuselage and these stubby wings. So his work really reverberated down through the decades. He was quite a visionary.
0: Was he part of Operation Paperclip at all?
1: No. He ended up going to France, and then I think he spent some time in Britain, and then he went back to Germany. So he was he was recognized as a brilliant engineer, but I think because it was never built, because it was strictly on paper and some wind tunner, t- tunnel tests, he wasn't sought out the way Von Braun was when he brought over his team.
0: Let's talk about Von Braun. Here's a guy I struggle with. And, you know, Von Braun, folks, uh, used slave labor, and a lot of people died and he just glossed over it because he wanted to solve all these rocket problems, and there was a manpower problem, so what did they do? They used Holocaust victims basically and just drove them to death. So this is the background of Werner Von Braun, the true Von Braun. Uh, He also built 1400 rockets, V1s, that landed in England with 500 hitting London alone. Around 9,000 Londoners lost their lives to V2 rockets. 55 years later, rockets modeled after the V 2, imported from the Soviet Union and North Korea, are you ready for this? Were launched against Israel by Iraq during the Gulf War, the Scuds. Can we talk a little bit about Wernher von Braun and his contribution to the space program and uh, the merits and the demerits? I struggle with this guy all the time.
1: Yeah, a lot of people do, and the moral issues. Continue to reverberate. There's been a couple of very good books written. The uh, last one I remember was by Michael Neufeld called Von Braun, I think Dreamer is Space, Designer of War. And that's one of mm-hmm. what's considered by historians now to be one of the definitive accounts of, of the use of slave labor, particularly later in the V 2 program when they were jammed up in the hearts Mountains where they were being protected from yeah. Allied bombers. Um, you know, he reportedly would walk past hanging bodies of laborers that had been punished, and not bat an eye. Now, what we don't know is how much scrutiny and disciplinary uh, potential he was under. Was he really the master of his own fate? Was he free to do this? Of course, this argues the point of should he simply refuse? He was obviously a very ambitious guy. Um, So I think there's some mixed morality there, certainly. And as he famously said, when one of the early V-2s came down to London, the rocket worked perfectly. It just came down the wrong planet. So that's a little (laughs) cold-hearted. But so he gets to the United States. He's cooling his jets in uh, White Sands, New Mexico for a number of years, doing more tests of the V-2 for the Army. Then the Army transfers him to Huntsville in the late 40s, early 50s, where he's working on uh, ICBM nose cones and so forth. And, you know, it was pretty clear this guy was going to have a critical role in the American space effort. We we were beginning to get the idea by the mid-50s that the Russians were pulling ahead of us, certainly by Sputnik. So uh, in the mid-50s, so in the early 50s, von Braun participated with Willie Lay and a number of other famous scientists, mostly German and Austrian, in this uh, series of articles in Collier's magazine, which is sort of the Life magazine clone, or maybe the Pinterest of its day, if you will. Um, very popular photo magazine, which I'm sure you remember. And they'd written these wonderful s- series of articles on how man will conquer space. Cue the reverb, right? Well, uh, some people at Disney, Ward Kimball in particular, who was part of his animation division, saw this and said, we need to make make this part of our TV show, which at that point was called Tomorrowland. So they did a bunch of episodes hosted largely by von Braun, who got up there with this very crisp, baronial German accent. But as was his gift in life, he was charming. He was charismatic. He was fairly good in front of camera. You could see his eyes reading the cue cards. But he's up there showing his rocket at the space station and all this stuff. And it made it real to tens of millions of viewers at home. And they said this guy's great. Yeah, he's got a German accent, but look at all that cool stuff he's got there. And he says, we're going to go to the moon in five or 10 years. So I think this did a lot towards sort of cleansing his image with the with the with uh, with Americans. Hard to say how the British felt. It's like more personal involvement with von Braun for obvious reasons. Um, so by the 19 late 1950s, when Sputnik launched, and we were watching the Vanguard rockets burn on the launch pad not get off the ground, Von Braun went to the the people, the science advisor for the president, and said, look, I can get this done in, in 60 days. And the guy said, don't you think you're being a little ambitious? We'll give you 90. An and he said, done. And 80 days later, he had Explorer 1 up, and that was the beginning of his run with NASA. So he's largely responsible for the design of all the Saturn rockets, including the Saturn V, um, Somewhat pivotal in the engine design, although the actual big engines had been uh, contracted by the Air Force in the 50s because they wanted one big rocket engine for their ICBMs and um, for the entire design of the moon effort. So he was really – probably why Story got a little bent about it was – whether you know whatever your moral judgment, this guy was a brilliant engineer who, with a handful of other people, was really at the helm of our entire moon landing effort.
0: One guy that always gets overlooked is Abe Silverstein. I know it's you don't mention him in the book, but I was wondering if if you would know enough about him to tell the folks about him and if you do, I'd just like to read this quick little um uh bio on him nine years before Apollo, eleven folks, and four days before. JFK asked the nation to put a man on the moon. Vice President Lyndon Johnson worried about getting space funding through Congress. So he asked NASA Administrator James Webb to come up with something big to get people excited. Webb asked Silverstein. We can go to the moon, said Silverstein. Webb asked how long that would take. Silverstein took a minute to do some calculations and told him, we can do it by the end of the decade. I thought that was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Can you tell the folks a little bit about Abe Silverstein and his role?
1: Uh, More about his cadre. He was the uh, president's science advisor, correct? That's correct, yeah, at Wind Tunnels. Yeah, and and as I recall, he was was a little... uh, before they committed to this decision, he was not keen on pouring the money it would take into the program to make it happen. There was a lot of dissension going back and forth in that team. But the concern was, look, we we need to do something here that doesn't involve invading Cuba or invading Eastern Europe to push back on Soviet influence because the world is in two camps. There's two superpowers, two camps. There's the communist bloc and there's the Western European bloc. There's the communist aligned nations and there's the ones that we want to influence, like the struggle that played out in Southeast Asia. So we're trying to find a way without getting into a shooting war to show the superiority of our system, our technology, our schools. And when asked, how can we do this and be sure we're going to win, Silverstein and the others went through the list. Well, we could try a space station. Now the Russians have got bigger rockets. They could probably beat us to that, and it's just not that hard. That's kind of the low-hanging fruit, even though it turned out to be harder than we thought, just like everything does. We could fly around the moon. Not sure we could beat them at that. Again, they got big rockets, and they've got a capsule that was ready before ours. They orbited before we did, so they were ahead in that part of the foot race. But landing on the moon and bringing people back, that's hard. And that was the point at which Silverstein and others felt, okay, this is something we could probably beat them at. And it turned out even to be harder than we thought. As you saw in the book, there were a number of plans to go to the moon from the mid-50s on. Would you look at them today? Yeah, you know, we'll launch 150 rockets in orbit and we'll put together this big thing and we'll take it to the moon and we'll build the station there and we'll have all these soldiers on it. How hard can it be? And we'll do it for $6 billion. Well, as it turns out, it costs close to $25 billion in 1965. And when you go look at a Saturn V in a museum, you got this 363 foot machine that flies, size of a Navy destroyer only the top 13 feet or so come home. So it takes all that hardware to get three guys to the moon, two guys to the surface, and all three of them back. So we were a little optimistic, but, but he was right in that call. That's what it was going to take to be able to pull ahead of the Soviets. And plus, at this point, although our lifting capability was far less in the early 1960s, we're moving into a time when American command and control systems were better, electronics were superior. Soviets are still actually flying vacuum tubes in some of their spacecraft at that point. So this was a a good call because we were just moving in Bell Labs had been in the transistor. We had integrated circuits. We were able to build a computer that could actually enable this flight, all 36K of it, that got us to the moon and back. So it it was a confluence of many things, both political forces and technical, and people like Silverstein and Bob Gilruth and uh, George Mueller and the rest of them.
0: Amazing stories of the space age. Rod Pyle True tales of Nazis in orbit, soldiers on the moon, orphaned Martian robots, and other fascinating accounts from the annals of spaceflight. Rod Pyle is our guest and the author tonight, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. And I hope you're sitting at home enjoying your coffee, your tea, or your beverage of choice and enjoying this great show. All these amazing stories from behind the scenes that we just never knew about. Um, I'd like to continue with some more, if that's okay. Now, you had mentioned Sputnik, 1957. The world stood on its ear, because all of a sudden the Soviets, unpredictably, had beat the Americans, the West, into space with this little orbiting, little tiny, little satellite. And I can't tell you how it scared the West and perhaps motivated the West to get going on their space program. Now, it's interesting, how did the military... How much did the military inspire or push for space, uh, some kind of vehicle in space or some kind of weapon systems in space? How big a part of the component of space exploration did the military
1: play? Quite large early on, from the late 40s up through the early 50s. We were, uh, of course, we had the nuclear bomb, atomic bomb, we had the atom bomb by the end of World War II and the hydrogen bomb shortly thereafter which we are quite comfortable with in the West. But then the Soviet Union, through hook, crook, clever invention, a little bit of espionage, got plans for all that. And pretty soon they had atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs. So now we've got these two superpowers staring across this deadly abyss of the Atlantic, uh, sort of challenging each other to that big nuclear standoff or showdown. And the question is, how are you going to deliver them? So at that point, you still had to load them in airplanes, either propeller or later jet-driven, and they would take a long lumbering trip across the ocean and bomb the bad guys. Well, airplanes are something you could shoot down. It's very hard to get past enemy radar. All kinds of energy was put into that. But if you can load these weapons onto rockets, blow them up into space, launch them into space, have them come down at transonic speeds and explode over a city, now you've got a whole different equation. So part of the fear of Sputnik was... Not only that we had this chrome ball going overhead every hour and a half or two hours that was beeping a little. All it did was basically beep and take a temperature. But that beep was this proclamation of space is red. (laughs) Oh, the east has won. It's a new dawn. And we didn't like that. And at that point, we had Vanguard on the pad, as we discussed a minute ago, which was a much smaller rocket with a satellite only about the size of a grapefruit. And the first televised launch attempt of that ended up in a flaming wreck and Vanguard bouncing off to the side, still beeping. It did survive the explosion. Um, but it was very embarrassing. And then not long after that, so, so von Braun gets Explorer 1-Up, which is a slightly larger, more capable satellite that does do some, some scientific research. Um, the Russians launched Sputnik 2, which had a dog on board, and it weighed almost a ton. So now we're looking at rockets big enough and potentially accurate enough to deliver nuclear weapons to the United States. Well, in this interim, between the late 40s and the late 50s, the American military had looked at this problem and said, OK, clearly we need a presence in space. They each looked at it in their own way. So the Navy said, well, we do submarines, and people are cooped up in submarine for months at a time. And uh, clearly that's like a spaceship, so we should do spaceflight. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. The Air Force said, no, no, we're the ones that fly. We fly high up into the the dear stratosphere. That's where we should be operating. We'll build rockets. And they started designing winged gliders, much like smaller versions of the shuttle. But the Army came along, which is one of the early chapters in my book, and said, no, no, space is the high ground. We're the ones that take the hill and shoot down on the bad guys. So we want the high ground. And not just orbit. We're sending people to the moon. And that's when it started to get to be a really bold set of visions with some sound engineering. The Army plan in particular, which was turned into President Eisenhower in 1959, had engaged von Braun because he was working for the Army up until 1958 when he was seconded to NASA. And they had this program called Project Horizon. And Project Horizon was going to be fully active and functional by 1965 for the bargain price of 6 to $7 billion. This is the one I was talking about earlier. It's going to take 150 or so launches of the Saturn I and Saturn II rockets from Christmas Island in the mid-Pacific because we want to be close to the equator and Cape Canaveral might work, but that's the Air Force and we don't want to talk to them. So we'll just go down to this Pacific island where we can launch our 150 rockets. And they were going to assemble an orbital fuel depot. And then from there, they would head off to the moon a group of, uh, it was either two or three men. I think three was going to be the pilot mission. And this is all direct descent. So big rocket sends off from Earth. Big rocket lands on the moon. Big rocket comes back, much like we used to see in the Bugs Bunny cartoons, except with a descent stage. Um, so these guys were going to go to the moon by, I think, 63 or 64. They were going to scout out a good spot for the base. Then we'd send all the hardware. We'd send another crew of nine men. Of course they're all men, because this was the sixties. And in fifteen to thirty days, using cranes and block of tackle and high explosive, they're going to dig trenches, lower these, I think they're eight by twelve foot cylindrical modules down into the lunar soil, cover them with dirt, join them together, seal the airlocks, put in the cabling, put in the bathrooms and the kitchen and the sick bay and the residential area and all that, and build this operational moon base in two to four weeks in an environment we've never been in before, but how hard could it be? And by 1966, we'd have crews going in full rotation, anywhere from 12 to 20 soldiers. The best part is because we knew in our hearts that the Russians were going to try the same thing, even though we had real, no real evidence of that, we were going to arm these guys. So the two major weapon systems were the lunar Claymore, which was just like the Army's Claymore mine used here. It's a big slab of a thing with plastic explosive and pellets in it, written right on the front, this side towards enemy, just so you don't get it wrong. And that would be able to puncture their spaces and disable them. And the Davy Crockett nuclear mortar, which looks like a big bazooka on a tripod, had a sub-one kiloton warhead that would fly about two and a half miles, and nuke the enemy over that next ridge. And that they not only tested, but they deployed in Western Europe in the 1960s. So um, yeah, that was Project Horizon. Very ambitious. Probably wouldn't have worked, at least not for those numbers, but you got to give the army points for trying.
0: Holy cow! Did they have the capabilities, the the science science people on board, or were they all over at NASA? They were going to work in tandem with NASA. How was all that going to work out? Who knows?
1: No, we're not we're not working with NASA because first of all, when they started this, NASA had either just been formed yet, and the military services were bent about having their their money taken away because they were cranking out studies right and left. So the civilian upstart agency taking our money. What's this all about? No, no, no. We're going to get this proposal in just in time so we can have the big space program. Let those guys do satellites. We'll send soldiers to the moon. So they were hoping that this would become their purview and their territory. But as you know, it didn't work out that way because there was only so much money to go around. And a number of the military programs did go forward for years with studies. The Air Force had a mini shuttle called Dinosaur for dynamic soaring they were trying to develop. Uh, They later had a space station for military applications they were trying to develop. But uh, the the various presidential administrations looked at this and said, this is too much duplication. Let's just let the NASA get their guys to the moon, and that's really our goal.
0: Peaceful goal like that, and thank God for that, that cooler heads prevailed instead of putting arms. Now, this is long before the Outer Space Treaty that was signed in 1967, even though that's full of holes. At least it was something that said, we're not going to put weapons of mass destruction anyways in outer space so that was at least something. But up until that point I mean it was a free-for-all and I'm just wondering um, you know international law in the world is if you have a piece of disputed land whoever uses the most gets to own it. And by going to the moon I'm just wondering if that's American property now does, do those same laws actually uh, stipulate the same thing in space, or is it quite different? Any idea, Rod?
1: The agreement is much like the Antarctic Treaty, so you can't claim territory, and we didn't try to claim territory. Uh, So what's being discussed now, there's been some more recent legislation about this, trying to update that agreement and perfect some of the, the parts of it that are a little vague now that there are private companies looking at doing mining on the moon and mining on asteroids there's a lot of interest in well who owns what so one of the examples i was at a conference a few weeks ago that uh, one of the entrepreneurs there brought up a guy who uh, helped fund deep space industries which is a, a space mining company asteroid mining company said you know the precedent is fishing rights when we sail out in the ocean we don't own the ocean we don't own the fish We don't even know the fish we're over them, but once we pull them up and have them on the deck, they're ours. So what these guys want is to be able to go to an asteroid or to the moon, mine the resources there, and there are many, they are vast, process them and be able to sell them and have control of that part of that body, but in no way claim that body, whether there would be subterritorial rights in some way that's an open question. And it's something that's generating a lot of debate right now, even though the U S is the only real contender at the moment for doing any of that. And, uh, for another book project I'm working on now, I've been interviewing a lot of leaders from European space agency, from Japan, uh, some from China and, and, and from Russia as well. And saying, um, what do you think? Are you guys going to be able to enter this kind of entrepreneurial private space race we have now, which is sort of the 2.0 space race, if you will? And the general feeling, even from the people that were there engaged in it, was no. You know, the U.S. has this unique structure of tax law, business law, the history of business, entrepreneurs, the brain trust, the universities, all these things that make people want to come here and that make tech work here the way it does. Seem to give us at least a temporary lead in this area, um, with China nipping at our heels. Because although they don't have that kind of private structure for these big projects and large investments, it'll come. So we have a temporary advantage if we take if we take if we utilize it.
0: That's exactly where I wanted to go with this, because China is making claims and boasts that they want to go to the moon, and um, I can see all kinds of problems with <laughs> confrontation. Um, maybe we will have to use that bazooka after all. No, I'm kidding. You know, it seems so absurd, but as we've all seen in the past year, the, the absurd can happen uh, very easily and very quickly. So, um, yeah, I was just wondering about that, and uh, it's something because China's not playing nicely with a lot of people in space. And there's rumors that they've taken down satellites just to show that they can and things of that nature. So this is where the military gets involved, and it scares the heck out of me. Because I always thought of space is beyond that, as something that would unite mankind, as when we walked on the moon. For one brief, glorious second, folks, when uh, we walked on the moon, the whole world was together, and we, it looked up. You know, there's a metaphor. It did look up. The whole world looked up like we could achieve anything we put our minds to, including universal peace. Can we talk about the space shuttle? I had Doug Osheroff on the show. He was one of the guys that looked at the Columbia incident, and he blames NASA all over the point. Not... NASA technology so much, but their attitude towards things. He told me with the Columbia incident, essentially they knew that one of the foam things had fallen and caused a bit of a rift and there was some danger, they knew about it. One of the technicians wanted to task a military satellite to go around the space shuttle to look where the damage was. but. They went behind the upper echelon to do that. The military agreed to do it. They wanted to help out any which way they could. And the woman in charge nixed it. And all of a sudden, we know the rest, what happened. So he blames NASA attitude on that whole problem. You touch on some other things that we were unaware of in the book. And I was wondering if you can talk about those things, about the shuttle.
1: The shuttle is, is a complicated subject because on the one hand, and I asked Gene Kranz about this a couple of years ago in an interview with the mission controller from the Apollo and shuttle era. So what are your feelings on the retirement of the shuttle? And he said, you know, it was a wonderful spacecraft. It served us for a long time. Um, and I'm sorry to see it go, but it had its shortcomings. And that's putting it mildly. This was a program that ended up being a kludge of a lot of different forces Uh, the cold war was not as hot as it was during the 1960s. The shuttle started flying in 1981. Uh, NASA was looking for a follow on program to Apollo. Now they would have ultimately saved money as far as I can tell from looking at the studies I've seen, or at least broken even continuing to use the Saturn V and the Apollo technology, which in many ways was far more capable, but Nixon came into office and, that's Kennedy's program, so we're going to change things. So they cut the budget quite a bit, and they were talking about shuttle, space station, uh, all kinds of other plans. There's even at one point talk about using the Apollo hardware to send astronauts in a flyby around Venus and Mars. Um, but the shuttle went up. So the original design for the shuttle, which was much bigger and, and more robust, uh, at least for the for the overall design of it was the first stage also had wings and was a spacecraft, like a bigger version of the shuttle. It boosted from the launch pad, and once it released the shuttle at high altitude, the first stage would glide back to a landing to be serviced and refueled and used again. The orbiter would go up, do what it had to do, come back, land, and that too would be serviced and it would be serviced to be used again. Um, that plan was way too expensive, very ambitious, uh, so they began chipping away at the corners, and by the time we were all done, we had the orbiter, which is the shuttle, we all, what, we, what we all know is the shuttle, the winged part, looked more or less the same. It was bigger because the Air Force got involved and said, we need a bigger payload bay for those huge satellites we're putting up, and no, we won't tell you what they're for. And then the big orange fuel tank, which was the expendable part, and then the solid rocket boosters on the side. Now, von Braun... And his team had always felt that you didn't want to put solid rocket boosters and people together. Except for the escape tower at Apollo, everything was to be liquid-powered because that's throttleable and controllable. That was overridden, and so the shuttle came together as it came together. The downsides of that design, besides being very expensive, depending on how you slice the math, it was about a billion, three to a billion, five uh, five a flight, which is a lot, way more than Apollo, um, at least the rocket part of Apollo. The other shortcomings were there are a bunch of single points of failure. So if, as we saw with Challenger, if you had a problem during ascent, when the solids were still burning, nothing you can do. There's no escaping that monster. You're stuck. Once the solid fuel tanks have burned out and you're still accelerating and climbing, if something went wrong, serious engine loss or something of that nature, there were various protocols to abort. You could try to abort to orbit, which is continue to power to a lower orbit and come home. If you had to separate the external tank before that you had to basically unbutton from this thing, get back behind it, dive below it, and here's where it gets funky because there's no parachutes on the shuttle itself. You would have to get it into a stable glide, the astronauts had to unbuckle, get up, get to the deck where the hatch was, open the hatch, assemble a a nylon uh, like a fishing rod, a big long fishing rod, feed that out the window, attach it to the side of the hull, and then put on their parachutes, clip onto that with a carabiner, walk out and jump. And the idea of that nylon uh, staff was to slide you past the rear elevator and the rocket pods back there so you didn't slam into the hull. It was extremely unwieldy. Most of the astronauts, if you ask them, felt there's no chance that was going to work. And the likelihood of being in a stable glide at that point was kind of questionable as well. Um, and as you know, they never had a chance to use that. We had the Challenger, which exploded during launch. Because of a faulty ovary seal on the solid rocket booster, which is a whole nother tale of, of drama and woe. It was a poor design from the beginning, and they had plenty of warnings that they were having burn through problems, but the program had to move ahead to try and keep this flight rate up to what they had pro- promised Congress. And then Columbia in 2003. Was that
0: political pressure put on them
1: to maintain um, that, that uh, pace and I the think gate safety? So. Although it's hard to know how much of it was external political pressure and how much was internal pressure because NASA, even to this day, I mean, they're operating 10 or 15 times the missions they were in the 60s on one-tenth the budget. So that, that math is moving the wrong way on these two plots on the chart. So there's a lot of pressure to not make mistakes. So if you go up to JPL, where I was today, and you talk to people up there, the idea of a mission failure is unthinkable because Congress doesn't like that. And JPL, to their own detriment in a way, has achieved this reputation of not only does almost everything we try work, but it works for 10 years. So we've got a Rover. It's been up there 11 or 12 years now. It's a sensational piece of hardware. It was supposed to last 90 days to a year max. So when you build this kind of expectation and something goes wrong and Congress goes, You had a spacecraft failure. Well, when you're trying new things and going to places that are foreign and interesting and different where you can discover amazing things, you should have problems. But we've grown to a point that we can't accept that. When it comes to people, it's even more sensitive. So there was a lot of pressure on the one side to keep the flight rate up for the shuttle, fly, 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 deliver payloads, deliver military payloads. We're going to put business on there. We're going to put commercial satellites on there. On the other hand, you have the human safety people saying, you are pushing too hard. We're not getting enough refurbishment time. There's problems with the engines that we didn't anticipate that take longer to fix. And particularly with Challenger, they were bending flight rules about uh, temperatures and wind conditions. So Challenger launched when it was 28 degrees. And uh, the coldest launch prior to that, I think, had been 50 So the icing was a huge problem as well. And then, of course, with Columbia, famously, you have the foam chunks falling off the external tank. One of the things about that that makes it complicated when you're trying to assign blame is these guys are up in orbit. We think a foam chunk may have struck the leading edge of the wing. That's a hollow piece of carbon composite, so it's not terribly strong, at least not in terms of impacts, but it's a piece of styrofoam. So what speed can a chunk of styrofoam hitting a hard piece of of carbon composite actually punch through it? They weren't really sure. If there was a hole in that wing, would discovering it allowed them to do anything. They couldn't get another shuttle gassed up and up there in time to rescue them.
0: Doug told me, Doug Osheroff, physicist over at Stanford, folks, who was on the the Columbia uh, examination panel, he told me that Atlantis could have been gassed up and got up there and rescued them.
1: Within a lot of time. I know that there had been missions where they had had Atlantis on standby. As far as I know, they're only for the Hubble uh, Space uh, Telescope repair missions. Uh, another question is, could they have gotten the space station? It depends on the orbital alignments. I don't remember what inclination they were on on that flight. But part of the mea culpa that I read was, well, we really didn't think there was much that we could do. It's kind of a complicated soup. I I do think there was carelessness involved, but certainly there's nobody at nasa that wants to put lives in jeopardy of anybody and for god's sake not the astronauts because that's a bad news day when that happens so um if there were oversights i think they were inadvertent but you know we may never know exactly what political pressures are brought to bear i think people on that review board are in a much better position to talk about than most of us who just read what gets published.
0: Fair enough. Several years ago as part of a means to punish Russia for invading the Ukraine, President Obama decided that no longer would NASA work with the Russian Space Federation. Do you know if that's been rescinded at all or is that still in play today?
1: Well, th- that's one problem. The other problem is ITAR, which stands for International Trade and Arms Regulation, I think, and this is to stop the flow of, of uh, militarily valuable equipment and knowledge out of the U.S. into foreign hands. So NASA is very hobbled in working with any foreign space agency. In fact, if you talk to some of the engineers on various missions, especially the unmanned one or the, the Canada arm segment of the shuttle, it's difficult to even talk to Canadians. And uh, who's a friendlier foreigner than a Canadian?
0: (laughs) So, there's a lot... No wall, by the way, yet, folks on the border. Not yet. (laughs) And we'll be damned if we're paying for one. (laughs) Oh, please don't.
1: There's a lot of, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that statement, kind of speech going on. Um, So, when it comes to Russia and China, particularly China, it's very difficult. Now Russia we are still an active partner with because half the space station is theirs, you know? They have the power module, they have the propulsion module. Um, We have many other sections of it, but we've got this forced symbiotic relationship. So on the one hand, we're no longer buying engines, there's the damn music. I'm sorry, Rod. Rod Pyle tonight,
0: folks. www.nightfrightshow.com. Amazing stories of the space age, true tales of Nazis in orbit, soldiers on the moon, orphan Martian robots, and other fascinating accounts from the annals of space flight. Thank you so much, Rod. I always love when you come. I love to talk about space. It's the one thing that unites mankind, I feel, and that's why it's so important. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time. Inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts, order yours right now, nightfrightshow.com.